Hello again, and welcome back to Find On Film. Continuing on with our teen film thread of episodes, today we return to the Auteur series for a look at the films of 80s and 90s writer-director John Hughes. Just to jog your memory, the term auteur typically refers to the film's director as its author, and that the notion of auteur theory argues that a film is a reflection of the director's artistic vision. If a director is an auteur, there will be clear and reoccurring themes or visual styles seen across a number, if not all, of their films. This is a very special episode of Farrandon Film. As you may have seen or heard, I've been joined this week by film critic James King. James is regularly featured on Joe Wiley's BBC Radio 2 show. He hosts his own podcast, Cinema Stories, which can be found on all the major podcasting platforms, and is a published author with books such as The Ultimate History of the 80s Teen Movie and Fast Times and Excellent Adventures, The Surprising History of the 80s Teen Movie. His next book, Be More Keanu, is a light-hearted and philosophical look at what makes movie star Keanu Reeves so special. Be More Keanu is set to be released on the 6th of August and is available to pre-order now. You can follow James on Twitter at JamesKingMovies. James and I recorded our chat over a video conferencing app earlier this week, so I can only apologise for any distortion or difference in the usual audio quality. That being said, let's get into it. John Hughes started out by writing jokes for Rodney Dangerfield and John Rivers. Yeah. Um, he then went to start writing essays and stories for National Lampoon. His yep. first credited screenplay was National Lampoon's Class Reunion. Yeah, uh, Class Reunion was panned, but subsequently found success with the screenplays for Vacation and Mr. Mom, which yep. earned a three-picture deal at Universal Pictures. Yep. Yeah. Um, according to Spy Magazine, execs at Universal were unimpressed with a rough cut of The Breakfast Club and forced Hughes to finish editing the film in LA, which broke his deal to work in Chicago. So yep. he then sued them, got out of the picture deal, moved to Paramount, but then went back and forth between Paramount and Universal before finding his place yep. in Fox towards the end of his career. Yeah. 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 Um, he essentially garnered a reputation as someone being someone difficult to talk to, which is a little bit weird given the kind of sentimentality of his films. Um, and he became a bit of a recluse, would sooner stay in Chicago. Um, I mean, I was just because a lot of the, I will get into this a little bit later on, but I, I've come to John Hughes quite late. Um, right. A lot of my friends, a lot of the people the same age were essentially brought up with him and brought up with his films. I think I first watched Breakfast Club probably five years ago. Um, yep. So I, f- I feel like I'm quite late to the party with it. But I was surprised at how much he churned out in terms of yep. scripts and just directing the films because there's a good, I think it's, we're almost on one a year when we start looking yeah. at the films that he directed. Yeah, um, totally, yeah. And, and I, think I'm, that's, I'm, I think that really affected him because he was sort of a workaholic and would write all night you know, um, chain smoking, you know, to sort of get spew out these ideas because he was so, um, so full of of stories and just Mm. like these all night sessions, just churning out idea after idea after idea. And which was great, you know, it's great for us as, as film fans, but I think that meant that he sort of retired earlier than, uh, someone who would be perhaps a bit more measured with how much they, they churned out. Because yeah. it burnt him out, you know, his success burnt him out. And that's when, like you said, he sort of became slightly more reclusive and became took more of a back seat in, in production and writing rather than be, being the sort of the figurehead like he mm. was when he was directing stuff. Yeah, because, I mean, I introduced him earlier in the podcast as an 80s and a 90s director. And I thought, is that really given in the credit? But it's literally just that time period. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Not, not even the whole decades, is it either? It's sort of mid 80s to mid 90s. Yeah. One of the questions that I thought about asking you was like, are you familiar with any other directors that do the same? But then I had a look at um, Woody Allen and he's done yeah. a film a year since, you know, yeah, the yeah. 80s, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause it was, it was just strange to me. Cause like, I'm a, I'm a fan of like Christopher Nolan and things like that. So I'm used to waiting yeah. three years for these yeah. films to come out. Um, and then obviously, you know, there's the idea that it's everything that he does is biographical or autobiographical. There's a truth in everything that he's put on yeah. screen and things like that. Um, yeah. So before we really get into his work, um, I just wanted to know what your first experience of John Hughes was or is. Um, I think my first experience was Ferris Bueller's Day Off, yeah, um, which remains my favourite of all of his films. And I, I think actually the... I think it's the one that's aged the best, but I also think it's the one that even back in the eighties was, you know, pristine, was sort of untouchable. Um, and uh, I remember watching it on a day off. How wonderful was that? That I, I was having a day off. Admittedly, it was, it was a day off school because I was ill. I wasn't just bunking, 
But even so, there felt like there was some kind of kismet, you know, in the air, something like this had to be because I was on a day off from school watching a film about a kid taking a day off from school. So I was watching it on VHS, which is what my folks used to do, you know, when I was a kid and I was ill off school because they were both working. They just, my dad would just go down early to the video shop at 9am, rent me a couple of movies thinking, well, he can, this will just sort of entertain him for the day. Um, You know, which is great parenting as far as I'm concerned. I'm very pleased he did that. Um, And one of those films was Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Good. Uh, I think mine, just trying to go back as far as I could remember, is probably Home Alone. But just recognising the name John Hughes and then kind of picking up on it and it being around. um, And then even through, as I'd seen later things about Ferris and about Breakfast Club. Um, Because when I was at university, so this is going back a couple of years now, probably about eight years. um, In the final year, we did a film show on the radio station, on the student radio station. And I was talking to a good friend, Marty, about John Hughes. And I just had to back off from that conversation because at that point I'd not seen Breakfast Club, I'd not seen Ferris, yeah. and I, he, you know, he loves it, and he was he was all over that. So yeah. again, it was something. I was raised on Disney and the kind of films like the Disney Renaissance yeah. in the '90s and stuff. Oh yeah. So it was yeah. like this is definitely something that I need to catch up on. Um, and there's even, there's a real difference as well between um, between the '90s John Hughes of Home Alone fame and and he did some other movies that were sort of other little kids in wacky situations films. There's one called Baby Baby Stay Out. Um, there's a real difference between that John Hughes, you know, and if you grew up with that John Hughes, you think, well, he makes films for kids. He makes mm. kind of slapstick movies for kids. Um, and, you know, it was such a shift compared to what he'd become famous for in the 80s. Yeah. Um, so what I thought we'd do is we'll start off with some of his work as just a writer or like solely kind of yeah. writer credit. Um, yep. But I'll be honest, I think I'm relying on you for most of this. Um, because my, uh, <laughs> You're a foolish man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my, uh, my watch through was kind of just the films that he directed. Um, so as a writer, uh, we've already mentioned Mr. Mom and National Lampoon's Vacation, um, yep. which I read that Chevy Chase is based on John Hughes's dad. Right, okay. Um, have you seen either of those? Yes, yeah. I mean, both yeah. of those films, um, if you want me just to carry on now, are you happy with just... That, yeah, just yeah. <laughs> go for it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, both of those films are very much about families. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that always interested him, even in his later teen movies and his sort of kids' movies towards the end of his career. Families, of course, are still very much at the heart of it. But in Mr. Mom and, and uh, vacation, you know, they really are about families, a family on holiday or a family dealing with this idea that the dad would have to stay at home yeah. and the mum would go out to work, which was a real sort of radical idea in the early 80s. Um, so that, I, I, I think, comes from his own background. Um, and especially because he became a family man very young, um, you know, John Hughes's teenage years are sort of something that everyone's focused on because he makes teen movies. So we all thought, oh, let's investigate him in the 60s when he was a teenager mm-hmm. and into the Beatles and a bit of hippie and all this kind of stuff, which was all true. But then actually he married young, um, had kids quite young, had a sort of office job quite young, I mean, early 20s. And so suddenly this guy who was sort of rock and roller, you know, 60s beatnik, becomes Mr. Sort of Sensible with a sensible yeah. job in advertising and a sensible life. And I think that, that um, fascinated him actually for the rest of his career, that idea of what it means to be a dad and what it means to be a family man and to have that kind of traditional family unit. And um, it, it's, it's genius when you think about it because families, you know, everyone has a family of some sort and we've all sat down at a table with families and argued and, you know, uh, laughed and cried and all those dramas and, and funny things that, that, that come out of the family unit, uh, whether that's sort of a traditional family unit or a more broken family unit or a more updated family unit. You know, there's so much stuff that can come out of that. And he really mined that, I think. Um, but specifically with Vacation and Mr. Mom, which were solely about the modern 1980s family. And I think even more focused on the modern 1980s dad and what he represented. Yeah. And actually what he represented in both of those films was someone who just didn't really know what was going on. <laughs> you know, I think, I think so much is sort of 
occurred in the 80s. There'd been so much change politically and technologically, socially, all these kind of things. And you look at both Michael Keaton and Chevy Chase in those movies, and they're just that sort of one step out of touch with it all. You know, mm. they just can't quite get a grip on what's going on. Right, that's interesting, actually. Um, and then he went on and did European Vacation. Uh, and then in 1986, wrote Pretty in Pink. Um, this is one that I caught up with. I watched it on Sunday. Um, my instant reaction was, why didn't he direct this one? Um, is the same year as Ferris? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was just it was just purely because he was too busy, you know. By yeah. that point, he was really he churned out all these these scripts and just couldn't do two things at once, mm. and so got a protege, Howard Deutsch, to direct it for him whilst he was doing other things. Um, and I think that you know I love that film. I love Pretty in Pink, and uh, again, it has that kind of idea of the family and the the, the broken family. In, in the, yeah. Uh, in respect of Pretty in Pink, but um, I do think perhaps visually it suffers a little bit because it wasn't John Hughes actually behind the camera calling the shots. He was around, you know, it was his project, he produced it, but it wasn't literally him directing that film. And I think you can see the difference between the movies that he directed and the films that he was just oversaw more generally. Because yeah. um, one of the things, there's, there's two characters that I want to talk to you about throughout his kind of career. The first one is Ducky. Um, yeah. I found it quite difficult to understand Ducky's motivation because I always assumed that John Cryer was playing him as gay. And I assumed... Well, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. you say that because Molly Ringwald has said since, mm. obviously, Ducky was gay. Yeah. I mean, a, a, a sort of carry-on level, the guy's called Ducky. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's, that's quite a sort of camp nickname, isn't it? Um, and just the, the, you know, the way he wears his clothes, very sort of flamboyant. Um, with his hair, I, he was called Ducky because he had the ducktail hairdo, which is actually mm. why he was called Ducky. But um, you know, so there's something, certainly something very uh, camp about him. Um, but uh, I don't, I, you know, even though that's sort of there, and I think we can pick that out now, I don't feel that that was part of what John Hughes was no, writing. No. And actually, in the original script, you know, Andy and Ducky did get together. So, right, um, you know, it was certainly, it was certainly strongly suggested that mm. Ducky was incredibly attracted to Andy, you know, but I think, but I think there's a, there's a lot of guys in his movies and actually a lot of the pop stars around at that time as well. You know, they were sort of, uh, I think the phrase back then was gender bender. You right. know, they were, they were kind of quite flamboyant, you know, the new romantic movements. You look at like pictures of Duran Duran from the eighties, yes. you know, the big quiffed hair and the flamboyant outfits. There was a real femininity about mm. those guys. Because I think I found it quite interesting to look at in terms of, I feel he's the most ambiguous character across all of Hughes's work. And it was interesting co to consider him after I'd seen things like, you know, um, Bender in, ba in Breakfast Club. Because um, yeah. generally you kind of go for the kind of straightforward masculine male or a geek yeah. or a nerd. And there's no yeah. kind of shadow between that. And that, I feel like this is where Ducky fell into. So it was a bit strange yeah. to consider that he'd done that. And makes him a really interesting character, I think, mm. actually, because of that. Um, you know, and he, I mean, he does sort of nominally end up with, with a girlfriend at the end of the movie. It's all a little laboured. Um, and there were, you know, the whole ending was reshot to give it, a, you know, a different twist. Right. But certainly, you know, I think looking at him now, and I think if this movie was made now, absolutely, Ducky and, and Andy, it would be a sort of, uh, gay best friend relationship yeah and you know he would still be annoyed that Andy was with Blaine because Blaine represented a different social class and his friends who are you know the James Spader character they're awful people so they would still have that tension there but I just don't think we'd ever have expected them to get together and that's what put people off the original ending they filmed the original ending where Andy and Ducky get together and audiences just went you know test audiences they said we don't buy it Right, <laughs> okay. know, it's that there's no sexual chemistry between them you know they're great as best friends but we don't buy them as boyfriend and girlfriend yeah uh so they reshot it so that she did go off with with uh blaine and it, it, all of that you know with what you said it all completely makes sense why should there be sexual chemistry between them when mm. you know really he's more of a gay best friend than anything else it is interesting uh, it was one of the ones that just struck out to me that was all yeah um, yeah well you and molly ringwald agree on that well, I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
1987, Some Kind of Wonderful. Um, I, I've kind of read that this is, again, similar to Pretty in Pink, is essentially a John Hughes film that he just didn't direct, he just wrote it. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's essentially the same plot as, as Pretty in Pink, just right. with r- role reversals. So it's, you know, it's the sort of the outsider guy instead of the outsider girl who's in love with the rich girl instead of the rich boy. So, you know, it's the same love triangle. Mm. Um, and it's also directed by Howard Deutsch, who directed Pretty in Pink. Um, but with this time round, you, you do get that ending where the two outsiders, the geeky boy and the geeky girl, end up together. So at the end of Some Kind of Wonderful, he doesn't go off with the rich girl. Right. Um, he, he goes off with someone from his own class, from his own background, from his own world. So um, that's the major difference. But um, yeah, Some Kind of Wonderful, I, I feel, is sort of a reheated version of Pretty in Pink. Um, and actually, even though it was only a year later, which is really nothing, um, it it feels for me to have a lot less sort of energy and vibrancy about it. Mm-hmm. You can feel that it's sort of the end of the the era, if you like. You know, it was. I think it was the last. It was sort of the one of the last teen things that John Hughes was involved in, yeah. and you could tell that it was kind of you know we're coming to the end of things now. Right. Yeah, because uh, then, you know, going into The Great Outdoors, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, get into 1919 Home Alone. Yeah. Um, did you see the Netflix movies that made us special about Home Alone? I didn't, know. It's quite, it's quite good. It's, it's all about the filming of it. There's a lot of stuff in there with Chris, Chris Columbus. Um, yeah. So it's quite good to kind of see that. I don't think they touched too much on John Hughes. It was more to right, do with yeah. how the actor filmed it and... Yeah, yeah, and it's so funny because John Hughes, you know, that, that, that's his biggest film. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the biggest films of all time, in fact. You know, it was the biggest comedy ever for a long time. And um, I think with, with, with Home Alone, you know, we, it, we became so obsessed with Macaulay Culkin in that, in it being a Macaulay Culkin movie. Um, and then probably secondly, a Chris Columbus movie. Mm. But actually the John Hughes involvement, I think, got sort of pushed down the um, the rankings quite a lot, which I don't think Hughes was bothered about. You know, he makes all the money, but has yeah. none of the sort of the, the focus on him. Um, but that you, you look at things in there, and they are there's some absolutely classic John Hughes themes going on. Yeah. The, the family, for example, you know, going back family. to what we said right at the beginning, mm-hmm. the dysfunctional family, um, sort of the home and the geography of the home and the setup of the home. You know, that kind of Chicago suburban house, middle class house that is in a lot of his films. So, um, yeah, not a teen movie by any stretch, but no. there are a lot of familiar things in there. Definitely. Uh, going into the 90s, so this is kind of where it was primarily just writing at this point. Um, and it's quite interesting to know, so after, you know, career opportunities in Dutch, um, he adopted a pseudonym of Edward Dantes to do Beethoven and yeah. things like that. And so clearly he's yeah. pushing the fame away. He's just thinking, <laughs> this is it now. Twilight Hour is here. Yeah, and doing, I think he did, was it Flubber? Was it the, yeah. one of the Disney movies? Yeah, so mm. the, essentially these are kids' movies, Disney movies, where he's writing under a pseudonym. And it's, it's a job for hire, you know, it's, yeah. it's relatively easy money. I think the um, when John Candy died, which was about 94, I think, mm. John Candy obviously uh, he almost, you know, he's, um, he's kind of muse, really, John Candy yeah. in so many John Hughes films. I think when John Candy died, who was a friend of his, and at a young age, I think that was sort of the final straw for, for John yeah. Hughes in terms of seeking out Hollywood fame. You know, I think he thought, well, if it can do that to John Candy, I'm just going to take a back seat and just, you know, not, not go for that kind of Hollywood lifestyle yeah. anymore. Because I actually put something in about John Candy um, for a little bit later on. But um, so over the years, obviously, they developed a close friendship. Um, and uh, it was a weird interview that I found with uh, Vince Vaughn, of all people, who apparently was a good right. friend of John Hughes, which I wasn't necessarily aware of. Um, and okay. he mentioned, like you just said, he said, you know, he talked a lot about how much he loved John Candy. And he thinks that if John Candy had lived longer, John Hughes may have made more films as a director. So clearly there was yeah. something in there. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a sensitivity to him, um, which is actually why we like him certainly in terms of his team movies we like the sensitive aspect yeah. of his writing i think there are other aspects as well but um there's clearly a sensitivity to him as a person and a, a sensitivity to him uh, as a writer you know that's that's why we're still talking about the breakfast club 35 years later yeah uh okay so then we move into his films as a director 
Um, so I'm more up to speed with these. <laughs> so we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll back and forth a little bit. Um, so yeah. starting off with 1984, 16 Candles. Um, yep. Just to kind of kick off with that, when I, I watched it uh, probably a few weekends ago, and straight away saw some issues that are still prevalent today. So things like body image and fitting in and that kind of stuff. So that's adding to the most the almost timeless nature of John Hughes's films that is coming out here. Um, there was more than just a teenage point of view in that film because I thought you also got the point of view of the forgotten and unlooked over middle child with the Molly yep. Ringwald character. Um, the second character I wanted to talk to you uh, about is uh, Long Duck Dong. Oof, ouch. As soon as, as, as soon as he appeared on screen and I thought, there's a gong going off every time yes. he says something. Yes. And he's eating, he's using a knife and fork as chopsticks. And I just yeah. thought, wow, I didn't expect this. Um, yes. Were you aware of maybe the initial reaction to that um, I That's a good question. Um, I know, not particularly, because I um, came to 16 Candles, you know, later. Mm. And by that point, it was blatantly obvious that this was awful. Um, I don't know in the mid eighties what the reaction was, but then at the same time, you know, the fact that it was written and the fact that it got through <laughs> and, uh, you know, probably, uh, you know, lots of, uh, executives and people reading the script and it all got signed off and it all got made and it all got okayed suggests that there just wasn't that atmosphere then, yeah. um, that we have now. Um, but it is, it is quite horrific. Um, and I, I don't feel, you know, I don't, I don't feel that it's in any way sort of deliberately horrible. I mm -hmm. think it's just, I think it's just an ignorance, an ignorance yeah. from that era of, you know, race relations. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, that is what it, it is, what it is, you know, and, um, it's awful now, but, mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, the the guy was was. I think he's playing someone from China, isn't he? Or, yeah, um, and but he's like Vietnamese Japanese. in real life. Yeah. yeah, but then they used turning Japanese at one point as well when he pulls up in the car, and I just thought, what's going on here? Yeah, it's just this horrible mishmash of stereotypes and awful, outdated cliches. Yeah, um, and and there are others in that movie as well. You know, there are some sort of treatments of of women in it that uh, girls in it because they're you know high school girls, mm. which don't sit very well now um but i think you know it, john hughes we sort of rightfully elevate to a you know auteur status a legend and i think in many ways that he is but you know these are films from well that's well over 35 years ago that yeah. things have changed times have changed a lot of mm. things have changed and i think it's inevitable that there are going to be moments that are horribly outdated yeah it was really interesting looking at it afterwards because it's the one character from that film that has its own Wikipedia page because of the reaction and because of everything afterwards. Um, but in Kurt Honeycutt's book, uh, there's, there's a whole little bit where um, Geddy Watanabe, the actor, yeah. um, he said that he actually thinks that the reaction might have been different if a scene was left in because apparently they shot a scene where he jumped on the stage during the dance and rapped about what he likes in America. So the actor was right. convinced that maybe if they'd left that in, everyone would have been right. okay with him. Which, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a nice optimistic way of looking at things. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, I, I, I watch it now and I squirm because it's awful, but I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I, that there are, there were worse things happening. I think it just came from a place of yeah. just kind of silly ignorance of the time. Yeah. You know, I don't think there was a malice there. Because mm. um, I mean, one of the things as well that, I think was a bit more notable to me because I've not necessarily done these films in order. So I've, yeah. you know, I've, I've seen Breakfast Club a few years ago, Ferris and all that kind of stuff. So going back to 16 Candles, there's, all, there's a lot of things in it that feel like they're playing for laughs. So there's a lot of musical cues about like, oh, this is how you're going to respond now because that's shocking or that's supposed to be funny and you know different yeah. things like that. So it was a bit strange to see them rather than just relying on the dialogue, yeah. the characters, the chemistry that we had. Um, you mentioned the the kind of representation of the women in the film because obviously it's teenage girls and things like that. The one thing that struck me in that film was the geeks. Why does every geek have to have a physical deformity for them to be yeah. a geek? Um, yeah. But again, I suppose it's, yeah. again, of the time, as you mentioned. 
Yeah, and I think that actually the movie that John Hughes wanted to make and had written by that point was The Breakfast Club, um, which is a much more sensitive portrayal. Mm. And he wasn't allowed to because he was known for his comedy writing. And so, you know, he had to churn out this comedy, which has some great moments. I mean, I'm not going to trash the entire thing, (laughs) but I think this, this wasn't sort of the pet project of John Hughes that the breakfast club was mm. and so i think it i think it does kind of uh, tread water a little bit um and just um yeah go for some cliches a little bit more than perhaps other projects that he was more emotionally involved with yeah. um went on to do uh so going on to the breakfast club then because uh, it was floating around as detention was the working title for a while yeah right yeah um so, Which would make more sense, really. Yeah, just <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a phrase now that we just sort of know, and it's just a thing. But actually, you know, it doesn't. And and, and actually, over here, you know, the idea of Saturday detention mm. isn't a thing, as far as I'm aware. It never was when I was at school. You know, so the whole concept of it, yeah, the whole concept of it to to us in the UK um, was quite odd, really. Detention for me was like an hour after school ended. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't coming back at the weekend to do it <laughs> for the full um, day as well on a Saturday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the whole, the, you know, the Breakfast Club and just what it represents, I think, over here is is you know, I mean, we loved it over here, but it's still something that's um, very American. Yeah. Um. So did did you come to this later, or were you? Um... Yeah, I came. I came to this later. I mean, um, thankfully, I wasn't old enough to watch any of these when they actually came out. <laughs> right. So all all of them I came to later. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, what I loved about it and what I continue to love about it is the five perfectly drawn characters, their individual Mm -hmm. traits. Um, and I love the, the respect it gives to their emotions. Um, and it can be, you know, there are moments in the breakfast club where I squirm a little bit, but I don't think it's because it's outdated. I think it's just because you're really seeing raw emotions, um, on show you know that's what it's about it's about people who have the outward appearance of a certain type whether mm. that's a jock or a princess or whatever but by the end of the day those have kind of been stripped away and we actually see what's at the core of these people um, and so watching that that kind of stripping process you know is quite tough because yeah. they go through some 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 tough things and um some tough things are said, some revelations come out about their personal lives that, you know, that are unpleasant. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, you know, that's what I remembered about it. And what I still like about it today is that, I mean, it's really gutsy. Yeah. <laughs> it, and and it, John Hughes wasn't afraid to give teenagers respect like that and to say, actually, their emotions matter. Because mm. um, as I mentioned, I came to it quite late. Um, I watched it for the first time about five years ago. And it was on a, a watch list for a while, and I just decided I've got time, I'll watch it. And literally, I then used it in my teaching on the following Wednesday because we were writing scripts at the time. And I just thought the, the students are struggling with understanding how to develop the characters, how to introduce the characters. This is yeah. the perfect film to show them in order to do yeah. that. And, yeah. you know, I'd wished that I'd seen it in a year earlier and embedded it a little bit better, but it's still in the- there now. The introduction of the characters is amazing because actually they're introduced by being dropped off in cars. Yeah. And the way that they're introduced, the types of car, who's in the car with them. Actually, Bender, I think, walks. He, he doesn't does even walk, arrive yeah. by car. You know, And so even from that moment, you learn a lot about the characters. Yeah, you, um, Just from the way they're dropped off outside of school. You know, because you've got the, um, the... The names are going to escape me now. Molly Ringwald's character. Um, yeah you know, by a dad and he's saying things like, I'll make it up to you, don't worry. You know, she's got, it's quite a posh aesthetic straight away. Yeah, um, yeah. Brian, by his mum, who apparently is actually Anthony Michael Hall's real mum, which I didn't realise. Right, yes. Um, yeah, I think that, I think because they were all, he, he especially was so young, he had, yeah. to have his, <laughs> had to have his parents around on set as kind of, you know, to look after him. He gets the slight <laughs> dig from his sister on the way out the car, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Bender walks, Emilio Estevez's character, you know, the dad sort of saying, like, you're not going to mess this up, you're going to get yeah, in yeah. there, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then Alison, she goes to walk towards the parents' window and the, dri- the car drives off. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's brilliant. The, the, 
and, and the way those characters are carried through, you know, this, their traits, their outfits, their hairstyles, um, and the, you know, the way they speak, I just think it's, it's a brilliant, and it, you know, you could say, well, it's stereotypes of type. Well, yeah, I think it is. You know, that's kind of the mm -hmm. point of it. By the end, they're maybe not the stereotypes, but certainly when they start, we are expected to to treat them as stereotypes. The whole yeah. point of the film is to see beyond that. There's definitely more to a stereotype than, you know. Yeah. Because um, it was really interesting, actually. Thank you for flagging it up, being in the uh, the Zoom call on Sunday with Alice Oh, right, yeah. Oh, you yeah. did that, did you? Yeah, yeah, it was good. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, really interesting to see what she thought about different things and you know all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, and she's very, very sort of bubbly and happy about it. You know, I don't think that's necessarily always been the case mm. um, because you know people want to move on from yeah. stuff that happened thirty-five yeah. years ago. But I think when you sort of hit mid-fifties, you kind of go, "Oh, it's oh, I just accept <laughs> it now. That's what I'll be remembered for. That'll be on my gravestone." You know, fine. I was Allison in the Breakfast Club. It may have been a different call if Judd Nelson was in there. I think. Yes, yeah, I think he's still sort of raging inside about various issues. Uh, okay, so uh, same year, again, which surprised me, uh, we get Weird Science. And yeah. So again, this was one that I caught up with just the weekend before. Um, straight away, the theme song by Oingo, Oingo Boingo, which was uh, Danny Elfman's band that just yeah. came straight away. And I was like, all right, okay, I'm going to yeah. enjoy this, I think. Um, I didn't, actually. <coughs> I didn't enjoy it as I thought I was going to. Um, yeah. And I, I wrote something down, which is a little bit pretentious, but if John Hughes's films are autobiographical, I think this is puberty. I think this is where we are with Weird Science. Um, it's yeah. very voyeuristic. It's very male-centered. It's very kind of that kind of... I mean, I teach male gaze as part of representation. It's very along those yeah. lines. Um, and yeah. I think I much preferred Anthony Michael Hall's character in Breakfast Club to, the, to yeah. Weird Science. Um, yeah. It's just, I think I was on board with it for a... For a probably about half an hour and then it just began to fall apart for me a little bit and I don't know whether or not yeah. that's something that I was expecting um to happen in the film or anything like that but definitely toward the end I just I'd lost interest when the mutants yeah. arrive on the bikes and you know yeah. she, she, turn, she turns Bill Paxton into a sludge I just thought, <laughs> what am I watching yeah I mean it's it was it always surprises me how fantastical it is mm. um, even before all of that happens I mean listen the very concept of creating your own kind of super babies <laughs> is fantastical anyway but the, you know they go even further with that like the the rooms will change color and their suits will change color and stuff when they go from one room to the next you know but there's not I mean even if you wanted to tr to give the the sort of the whole Frankenstein's monster idea of creating your own person give that some credence you know that that might have possibly happened mm -hmm. then there are other things in it that are just utterly nonsensical that there's really there's absolutely no scientific background to and so that always disappoints me that he goes just that step too far or several yeah. steps too far with the fantasy element of it um but also you know i think that there is there is a sort of laddie element to john hughes national lampoon was very blokey as a magazine you know mm. um and it was funny and nostalgic and clever in many many ways but you know they weren't afraid to do sort of smutty gags and i think that um john hughes still had a part of that in him um yeah. and actually there were bits i think well we saw bits of that in, in 16 Candles, I think there were bits that were cut out of The Breakfast Club that would have suggested that, that didn't end up in the final movie. Um, I, I think this was sort of like a last last gasp for him of his sort of, like you said, his puberty, like his adolescent years, his laddish years. I suppose ultimately though, you know, the, ultimately the movie is about, look, just be yourself and be happy to be outsiders and all this kind of stuff, the usual John Hughes message. So mm -hmm. there is a sweet message in there. And I yeah. think the, the, the relationship the two boys have with their two girlfriends is very sweet and tender and and even you know Kelly LeBrock becomes sort of like a sort of uh, life coach to the boys really doesn't she yeah um, but you know you have to jump over quite a lot of hurdles to get there <laughs> it's almost like a cleanse he's just he's getting it out with this one yeah, yeah, you know, it's his third his third film in this deal that he had with Universal the third film he had with Anthony Michael Hall um, so you know. I think, like we said right at the start, when you're churning so much out, when you've got so many deals going on, when you've got so much product out there, mm. not everything is going to be perfect. No. 
It'd be amazing if it was. It'd be really strange if it was, I think. <laughs> well, maybe yeah. then you're into the Christopher Nolan idea, which is you just do a film every two or three years, you know. But if That's you're it. doing two a year, then, you know, the quality control, I think, is, is just not going to be quite so high. I mean, just the time going into doing two a year just boggles my mind anyway. Yeah. Um, so 1986, we're on to Ferris. So your favourite. Um, yeah. Start us off with that one. Yeah, I mean, I think Ferris, for me, is sort of the crowning glory because I think it says everything that he's ever wanted to say. And it does it without the, the, the cheap jokes as much, mm. the smutty jokes. Um, there's not even, you know, it's not even a romance in it because Ferris and Sloan are just together. You know, there's no suggestion that there's any kind of drama there or any conflict. You know, they're just together. The, dr- the drama and the conflict is between, um, you know, Ferris and Cameron. Yeah. So it's it's a buddy movie, really. It's you know it's about their relationship, um, but you know it's for me it's like there's definitely elements of Ducky in in Ferris in the way that he dresses, the way that he looks, and actually you know Matthew Broderick and John Cryer were sort of interchangeable in many ways. I think there were several films where Broderick was cast and then he left and they got John Cryer in and all this kind of stuff. So they're very similar kinds of actors and looking actors, but. Um, but Ferris is, you know, obviously much more confident than Ducky ever was and, and middle class. And, and just the fact that he can do anything, I think, is, is to me like this sort of it's like the ultimate teen movie. It's mm. like I'm going to create the ultimate teenage character who unites people, who brings a community together, who helps his best friend, who, you know, says he's going to marry his teenage sweetheart. You know, he can do no wrong. Um, and that that's a really um, uplifting kind of idea, isn't it? You know, yeah. He's done. He's done the John Hughes has done the teenage angst. It's not the the teenage angst isn't existent in Ferris. There's teenage angst in Cameron, but not in Ferris. This is just a celebration. Yeah, this is just let's enjoy being a teenager for a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. Because as I mentioned before, we look at this in terms of. Um, so paper one for the film studies GCSE, we look at the development of American cinema between two films from the same genre. So we look at um, Rebel That Cars from 1955, and then we go all the way up to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And there's a clear difference between not knowing who teenagers were, the kind of people that they yeah. are and things like that in Rebel, to now we can celebrate them, we can enjoy them, and yeah. look at you know the little cheeky chappies. They've got all this charisma about them yeah. and things like that. And yeah. I think instantly with Ferris, the winking to the camera, the breaking the fourth wall, things like that. If that yeah. wasn't there, I don't think it would have been, I, th- I, found it, I think it would have been more difficult to buy him as a character. But as soon yeah. as he looks to you and he says, yeah, I'm taking a day off and this is, these are all the things <laughs> that I've done. It's like, right, I'm sold here. This is it. Yeah. This is a great Yeah, character. I mean, it's, it's so much his film, not just because he's the title character, but he's almost like the director of the film, the writer yeah. of the film. You know, it's, he's in total charge of that, of that movie. Um, and that knowingness by that point you know this is mid 80s there'd been um obviously five six years of 80s teen movies so there'd been a lot out there they they were a normal thing it wasn't the the latest thing so much they were quite mainstream by this point so i think you had to if you wanted to keep things fresh you had to inject a new way of dealing with it Mm. um and we probably saw it again a few years later with bill and ted just that sort of tongue slightly tongue-in-cheek way of, of dealing with the um the stereotypes dealing with our expectations and audience and saying look we know you've seen other movies like this we know that you know how these end you know you but we're just gonna be a little bit more uh, yeah. cheeky about it and a little bit more knowing about it and then as well imagine if you had a day off what would you do with a day off you know what would you do with a full yeah. day especially yeah, if, I mean, it's dad, a great... if your friend's dad has got a ferrari <laughs> it's a real water cooler discussion isn't it it's like yeah. what if um and uh what, what I love about it, though, is that actually the things that he does aren't things I would ever have thought of, really. Mm. Um, they're really classy things. Going to an art gallery, going to a posh restaurant. You know, this, I, I love the way that it brings that kind of high culture and then mixes it with a baseball game or a street parade, you know, singing a really naff 60s song at a street yeah. parade. Um, you know, I love that, that mix of, of poshness, classiness um, with just silliness um and again that's just that thing of anything is possible um when you've got ferris there you can't predict really Mm. you know he could do anything and he could succeed at anything there are so many little jokes in it as well that just i I, I feel like i miss them sometimes and then when i go back i just laugh at them like 
One of them was um, from when I watched it again recently. Um, Ed Rooney stood at the front door that a, a lot of flowers get delivered and it says, hope you're feeling well from all the English faculty and staff. Yeah. And I just thought, what is this about? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, make sense um, because, he, I mean, at a very basic level, I don't think he could fit all that stuff into one day. I yeah. just don't think there are enough hours in the day for everything that he did. Um, so, that, but but it, you know, it's it, it because it has that knowing wink about it. But actually, weird science didn't have so much. Um, you forgive it some of those inconsistencies. Yeah. Really, would there would there be a sign? Excuse me. Would there be a sign on the water tower saying "Save Ferris"? <laughs> you know, he's only been off school for one morning already. There's a sign up. So would that happen? No, it wouldn't. But you know, it's just this fantasy world where he can create and do anything he wants. And it, I mean, it instantly creates that world as well with all, all, all those little bits of the safe Ferris and the police chief saying, oh, how's yeah. your son doing? We, we heard you, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's just all those little bits that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a real treat to teach, actually, as well, to be honest. Um, it's one of those that you're kind of happy to do it. Um, I mean, I, st- I absolutely stand by. I think, there's, I think there's one moment when Jeannie is shouting down the phone to the police officer, you, do you speak English? That's yeah. Great. So I think that's a little awkward now um and unpleasant but really you know for a film of that age which is a very white middle class movie mm-hmm. um i actually think that it's it still holds up yeah uh so then the year after we're going into uh planes trains and automobiles which to me i thought clearly is first kind of foray into more adult material um and then it became clear afterwards reading up on him and reading up on his life that a lot of this was replicating his work in advertising, you know, from yep. the, the time before. Um, again, this was a first time watch for me recently. I love this. I thought this was great. Um, yeah. Steve Martin and John Candy's chemistry was fantastic. And I just thought, what's going to happen next? And every time they got into something new, whether it was the, you know, the car or anything like that, I just thought, well, this isn't going to go well. Something, you know, <laughs> you're expecting it to happen. Um, I yeah. think it's definitely quintessentially 80s. Even the yes. score at the beginning of the film when he's running for the cab against Kevin Bacon. I yeah. just thought, this is yeah. 80s all over. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the kind of, this was my realisation that he worked with a lot of the same people because I was recognising different actors um, yeah. from things like Planes and Trains, um, Ferris from Home Alone yeah. as well. Um, I mean, yeah. the the lady that works at the airport that Steve Martin screams at, I just yeah. thought, you didn't get yeah. this treatment in Home Alone. <laughs> You're a little <laughs> bit better off there. <laughs> Yeah, and it's, you know, it, it has completely that idea of the family that we've talked about already. Yep. You know, that's at the heart of it. Someone desperate to get back to see their family for Thanksgiving. Um, but I think it's also, perhaps, perhaps with this and Ferris, is, is John Hughes at his peak of blending sort of slapstick silliness mm-hmm. with emotion. Yep. And that's, you know, for, and for the emotion to feel genuine and to feel heartfelt, Lots of people try it, but we've sat in, how many films have you sat in where they've tried to be emotional and just like, oh my God, this feels so calculated now. It feels yeah. like such a mood shift that it doesn't make sense. Um, but, but John Hughes was very skillful and actually his actors were very skillful as well. I think mm. Steve Martin in, in outside of John Hughes films, you know, did it very well. Parenthood's probably another one um, where you can shift from the comedy to the emotion yeah. really smoothly and John Candy is brilliant you know John Candy is has a sort of tragedy to him ultimately and he's yeah. funny and he's annoying but I mean he's this tragic figure which is why he's invited to the dinner at the end you know because you want you want him to be happy um you don't want him just to bugger off and never be seen again you know <laughs> he, he has you, that weird like, thing sorry he has that weird thing where like you, you can you can feel sorry for him even with the slightest look of his face and yeah. it happens a lot in planes and trains, and I feel like that's kind of the, his character. But even subtly in something like Home Alone, where he's trying to coax um, Kevin's mum to get on the kind of the poker truck with them, and yeah. she's a bit like, mm, and it's just the the emotion that comes across yeah. his face. It's, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, okay, so then eighty-eight, one that I'm I've not seen, I'm not too familiar with. Uh, she's having a baby. Yeah, um, which is why Kevin Bacon was in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles right, briefly, yeah. because actually John Hughes was sort of making back to back. She's having a baby, so he got 
Kevin Bacon to do a cameo in Planes and Trains and he got John Candy to do a cameo in She's Having a Baby because right, they were okay. all being filmed around the same time and being made around the same time. Um, but it's kind of, you know, I think John Hughes sensed that his teenage stars had had enough of mm. working in that genre, um, which is fine. You know, that's what happens. You can't be a teenager forever. And I think he sensed that about himself as well. That right. he was now 40-ish, Mm. And, you know, he'd done, he'd said what he wanted to say in teen movies and he had to move on as well. And so um, she's having a baby is quite interesting because it is, you know, with someone like Kevin Bacon, it's a former teen star. I mean, it's someone who five Mm. years earlier would have been in one of his teen movies. But now, of course, they're sort of 20 something yuppie types, very much of the era um, and just investigating the hardships and the toughness of, of, being a married couple and being a pregnant couple and all yeah. the things that that brings. Um, so it was him maturing and just moving into a different world. Mm. Uh, but I still think that it's a world that's sort of relatable to his previous films. You know, it's like characters from his previous teen movies who have now grown up a bit, almost like a sequel to something, mm. and then just exploring their, the, the new problems they have. They don't have the teenage problems anymore. They have the 20-something problems of work, of yeah marriage and of, of childhood of, of having children i suppose that's kind of pinned down into his the idea that he's got an autobiographical stamp going across the whole thing yeah. because um there's a lot of stuff in here that apparently is reference to him and his wife having a baby quite early yeah. out of the teens yeah. and moving in getting married obviously things like that um yeah apparently he struggled to find an audience it's not necessarily one of the most well-known or kind of well-favored ones um, it does exactly. use um, the Kate the Kate Bush song "This Woman's Work" in it, which is just a fantastic moment. It's a fantastic song and it's a fantastic moment. I think what people do remember of this film, which isn't much, but if they remember anything, it's it's the use of the Kate Bush song. Right. Okay. Um, but you know, it's I think after in that in that sort of late eighties world, all of the people from the, a few years earlier who were involved in the teen movie era were struggling to find their place, whether that's right. the actors. Or, or even John Hughes as the, as the king of those films. Mm. You know, they'd all moved on. The world had moved on a bit. So it's like, well, what is their place in the world now? And which is why, you know, Molly Ringwald and Rob Lowe and Emilio Estevez, and that, they, they were just in flop movie after flop movie. You know, they couldn't, they couldn't re- recreate their success that they'd had as teenagers. And I don't think for a while John Hughes could either because he just didn't quite know what arena he was meant to be working in. Mm. it's quite strange when you think about the genre shift from the 80s to the 90s because one of the things that we talk about in terms of context for these films for the 80s is that you either found teenagers being applauded and celebrated in teen films or being the victims of horror during that kind of thing that happened then but then when you get the eight the 90s you're into things like sci-fi and action and it's just weird that it's just defined by those decades and there's not much crossover yeah i know and i think perhaps that's why we we remember it so well it's because it does whether this is coincidence or not it fits neatly into the 80s as a decade yeah you know it's like the beatles being associated with the 60s because Mm. they'd split up by the 1970s so you know they fit very neatly and i think the teen movies fit very neatly you know when i wrote a book about 80s teen movies i started late 70s and finished early 90s but that really you know the, the the main chunk of it was very neatly sitting within 1980 to 1989 yeah. um and i i do think that that as decades change um almost subconsciously we move forward mm. a little bit and take new steps and want to be interested in new things and perhaps by nine you know come 1990 people are thinking breakfast club it's only five years old but it feels like an 80s movie we're in the 90s now we want to move forward and do other things and i do think that that you know there's sort of historical proof that that does happen yeah, um, a real sort of psychological shift. So um, I think that's partly why the '90s teen movies took on such a different, or a lot of them took on a different um, mood, mm. because it just it felt, especially if you're a teenager, right? Five years is a huge amount of time. Yeah, you know, definitely. Um, and to think of something that's five years old, you know, from 1985, this is 1990. That's years ago. I'm not that's interested so in that. So old hat. You know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, just even thinking about the 90s, I'm trying to think of teen films that were released throughout the 90s, and I kind of go from end of the decade 89 to the next one I can think of as American Pie. So, again, it's... Yeah, well, the, 
the, the late 90s, they really came back. Yeah. Um, the, the key one in the middle is Clueless, which sort of bridges of course, the gap, yeah. really. It kind of mm. bridges the gap between the John Hughes movies and the, the late 90s movies with, yeah. you know, American Pie and Cruel Intentions and all mm. those kind of things. Um, but it did really take 10 years for them to come back into fashion. Yeah. And the next generation of, of teenagers to come along and discover them all over again. Mm. Um, okay, so we're nearly there. Uh, Uncle Buck next on 1989. Um, <coughs> yeah. So again, more family this, stuff. More family, even more family stuff. Yeah. Strangely, yeah. that they're going to go for the kind of almost from dysfunctional to fully almost broken family. Um, yeah. The real struggle that Tia has in terms of a relationship with her mum, especially. Um, I felt like Tia was almost like the spiritual sister to Alison from Breakfast Club. I felt like there were a yeah. lot of things going on there that were really similar. Um, yeah. And again, it's it's more or less to do with the point of view of a teenager, but more to do with the kind of, in, I would say, family dynamic in general, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and again, actually, I think that Macaulay Culkin in both that and in Home Alone, you know, you could easily see him as sort of an... Uh, some relation to Ferris Bueller because he can do it all you know he's totally in charge totally in control and there's something very entertaining about seeing a teenager do that getting one up on the adults Mm. something arguably even more entertaining certainly more funny about seeing this tiny kid doing it (laughs) um the tiny kid who can do anything who can do no wrong who's smart who can outwit everybody um and you see the, the the early signs of that when he's when he's interrogating um buck in uncle buck you know he's he's got a, a, an adult's head on a child's body really hasn't yeah he? i found it quite cute to read that um apparently john candy put post-it notes on his head so macaulay Culkin <laughs> remembered the lines during the interrogation scene <laughs> <laughs> you can just imagine him sat there you know yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now i will watch that scene with a new new <laughs> images in my head now see if you can spot him reading the lines <laughs> yeah 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 um, and then final one then, so 1991 in Curly Sue, which, you know, didn't go down too well with everybody, I don't think. Yeah. Um, I, I've not seen this one. I'm not sure how familiar you are with it. Not massively familiar, but it, yeah. it's, you know, it's John Hughes. You've got, you've got, because I think we should never forget that John Hughes was a businessman. Mm-hmm. And it's always, you know, I, I, that doesn't mean that his emotions aren't genuine and everything he put into his teen movies isn't genuine I, you know i really believe that it was yeah. but at the same time he knew about brands mm-hmm. and he knew about fashions and fads and the teen movies that he did were a fashion the world moved on and i think with with home alone and when with macaulay culkin um he discovered a new fashion and a new fad which was the you know the kids movie um yeah. and you saw that in curly sue baby's day out home alone movies uncle buck to a certain degree you know so he was he was smart enough up here business-minded enough to think i can kind of riff on this genre for a while mm. and do several movies um that focus on focus on little kids um and you know i've spoken to people about him and they've gone look genius brilliant writer creator totally emotional you know totally genuine but you know let's not forget that he knew about the system and about business and that's that's why he got people to direct his scripts you know because Mm. he could have brand hues out there but just not have to do the daily grind of directing it you know so as a producer i think um, which you know he was more in his later years he sort of cottoned on to this new fad which was the the little kid movie yeah, one of the interesting things as well about in terms of him writing and directing and things like that that I picked up on was um, apparently he believed that there were very specific screenplays that only he could direct. So the films that right. he ended up doing, so Breakfast Club, Ferris, all that kind of stuff, because he yeah. knew what the vision was all the way through and he didn't want to trust anybody else with those. Um, right. Then obviously, you know, he then had the protege of Howard Deutsch with uh, Pretty yeah. Pink and things like that. So again, I, yeah. I, I thought that was quite interesting to look into. Um, yeah, yeah, and and maybe those movies that he did direct are the ones that feel slightly more genuine and, yeah. and earnest, you know. And, and knowing that what you just said, you know, you assume it might not be correct, but we assume that therefore it was a real pet project for him. Mm. You know, it's a real labour of love for him. If he didn't want anyone else to direct it, this was something that was personally really close to his heart. Perhaps yeah. more so than some kind of wonderful, which was a bit of a cash in on the fad that he'd helped to create. Right. Yeah. 
Um, so, I mean, we've already mentioned uh, some of his frequent collaborators, so people like John Candy. Uh, some familiar names come up in the credits of so producers like Neil Tannen, Michelle Manning, Zach Fujimoto, yeah. the cinematographer, Iron Newborn yeah. for music. Um, one of the things that we look at in terms of auteur theory is key kind of trademarks that go through all of their films. So obviously we've got youth, the kind of dysfunctional family that we mentioned before, um, anti-authority. And there was, a, there was a really interesting quote that for kind of for us and teaching and things like that, is that apparently when John Hughes first watched Rebel Without a Cause, he sympathised with James Dean's torment over his incommunicative parents. But then after he had his own kids, he went back and watched it and then sympathised <laughs> with James Dean's dad. <laughs> right. That was yeah. quite interesting. Well, that, yeah, and that would make sense perhaps with his, you know, why he stopped making teen movies. I mean, you can't, you can't make teen movies and be a teen movie auteur if mm. you stop believing in what they're fighting for. <laughs> and he was already, you know, in his mid-30s when he was making them. So you can understand that just... He, he grew up. You don't stop growing up once you become an adult. You know, you have opinion changes when you're an adult as much as you do as a kid. Yeah. And it, probably he just didn't buy into that anymore because, you know, his own kids were probably getting close to that age themselves. Yeah. And I think maybe that is why he went into the kind of smaller kiddie films or aimed at those yeah. kind of because of his own children, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, some things that we've mentioned, so about stock characters or stereotypes, it, it almost sounds like a criticism, but I feel like he's one of the people that does it well and does it in terms yeah. of, we're going to give you a different representation or an alternative approach to these people. Um, yeah. And then sentimentality, because like, there was a big thing in the book about um, he he wants films to be a departure from reality or he wanted films to be a departure from reality and that the idea was that it's going to end well because sometimes life doesn't end well. And I want you to kind of feel this sense. And he, you know, unashamedly, you know, sentimental, which I think is absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, I think what's very interesting about all of those things, whether it's the stereotype characters or the sentiment, is that they can eat, you know, I'm, I'm, as a film critic, you see this all the time. Sometimes you can use those words as a criticism of a film. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's all really, it's not, it's not about the sentiment or the stereotypes per se. It's how they're done. Yeah. And if they're written well, or especially performed well, and I think Hughes always chose the right people to perform them, then you can get away with it. And it could even be the same line, you know, the same line said by someone who's not a great performer could be a real stinker and it could ruin the film. But if it's delivered by John Candy, it could make the film, you know. Yeah. And I think that, that, that um, there's a very fine line with those things between what's genius and what's terrible. And a lot of it is down to, and a lot of it's down to the post-production, you know, with John Hughes, especially the editing was really critical to mm. how his films were made. And I know Breakfast Club was really made in the editing room. And it's perhaps a little overlooked in, in film studies and certainly popular reviewing how much editing plays a part. That yeah. uh, you could film a movie and it could all be, you know, recorded and done. But actually, you could look back at it and go, this makes no sense whatsoever. Mm. But it's down to what goes on in the editing room to cut it together and make it and shape it into something that's really coherent. Um, and again, you know, you can edit sentimentality so that it's beautiful rather than awful. Yeah. And that's definitely kind of one of the lasting things, the timelessness of his films that comes across, definitely. Um, yeah. So last little bit then, I suppose. So... <clears throat> Um, the kind of thinking about the legacy that he left on cinema. So obviously he, he died in 2009. I mean, even the story of him dying kind of got me, the fact that he'd gone to visit his son and had a heart attack. And I just thought that's awful, you know. Um, yeah. So immediately kind of following that, there were tributes from him and his family from um, the Oscars that they did. They did a, a kind of like yeah. memorial for him. Um, apparently he's got countless unfilmed scripts, which I think is no surprise to anybody uh, with the amount yeah. that he was writing. I just wanted to pull out a quote from the book just before I ask you kind of like a final question. Um, so one of the things from the book says, uh, he connected with an entire generation in a way that hasn't been duplicated since. He broke down the veneer of high school stereotypes to discover not what separates teens, but what unites them. His films connected because they, booked, they spoke to teens as if they were adults. He saw no reason why the thoughts and emotions of 16-year-olds were any less valid than he, than he was at 36. Yeah. Which I think sums everything up sums, pretty much exactly yeah. yeah whoever wrote that is brilliant <laughs> was that Kirk who wrote that <laughs> I think that was Kirk yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I mean that I, I think that there are there are all kinds of reasons why his films are great and why they've lasted but certainly the teen movies the main thing 
is the respect that he gave the characters and yeah. the belief that he had in their own problems. And, you know, in a way now that we take that for granted, I think mm. it's like, well, well, why wouldn't he, you know, because we've had a, all the years since of films that have been influenced by him. Yeah. But before that, you know, if you were watching Porky's or you were watching um, Animal House or stuff like that, you know, they're, they're just sort of crazy, sexy, riotous romps, you know, yeah. they're, they're not really about giving contemporary 80s teenagers a voice. No. Um, and that's what he did. He didn't deal in nostalgia. He didn't deal in, oh, weren't things better back then? He dealt with the here and now, the music of that time, and the type of people who were in high school at that time. Yeah. Um, so last thing then, I'm yeah. just thinking about his legacy kind of moving forward. I've spoken a lot recent, on recent podcasts about my love for Spider-Man Homecoming. I think it's one of the kind of <laughs> yeah. underrated marvel films that have come out in recent years and there's a lot of hues in that film is there anything that you've seen recently that you think this is hues um i mean god it put me on the spot i mean i see it all the time no no it's fine because in a way i see it all the time and i'm always surprised to see it in um i was i tell you i was watching a music video the other day i for my own podcast I interviewed a, a singer called Shura, who's uh, like an indie pop singer. Okay. And I was watching a lot of her videos and she's done a bit, you know, she's too young to remember John Hughes <laughs> when he came out, but she's done a music video that is complete. You know, it's, it's set in high school. It's Sherma high school. It's completely the whole kind of uh, pretty and pink breakfast club setup. Um, and um, I thought even now for someone in 2020, who is probably, you know, herself was, is a millennial, Mm. you know so wasn't around for this it still comes through and you still see it in teen movies like the spider-man that you mentioned um and others you know you still see them reference way more so that that sort of second phase in the 90s of teen movies like 10 things i hate about you and american mm. pie stuff like that you know they were huge but i don't really see them referenced so much i don't really see people going back to them in the same way that people go back to the 80s stuff from john hughes yeah um uh, so it still surprises me. You know, we were both on this Zoom chat with Ali Sheedy mm. celebrating 35 years of The Breakfast Club. It still surprises me that 35 years later, there is enough interest in that movie yeah. for that to happen, for it to be a thing. Um, and I'm very glad it has. But, yeah. you know, that it, it just that there are so many other genres of films that just don't have that kind of longevity. And ultimately, it's, it's down to the, the realism. It's down to watching those films, like Rebel Without a Cause, you know, mm. that's even older. You watch it and you go, I understand those emotions. It yeah. might be from a different decade, a different century, but I understand what Jim is going through in that movie or I understand what Cameron is going through in that movie, you know. And if they didn't feel genuine, then they wouldn't last. Definitely, yeah. Um, so I just wanted to kind of wrap up with our favourites. I think mine is Breakfast Club. You've mentioned that yeah. yours is Ferris. I think so, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it, for personal reasons, it's sort of the one that got me into the whole thing. But also just looking at it now, I think it's a very adventurous, flamboyant, one-off kind of movie yeah. um, that, that people have tried to replicate. Um, you know, uh, do you remember that awful film, Van Wilder? Van yes. Wilder Party Liaison with Ryan yes. Reynolds. <laughs> yes, I remember it speaking to Ryan Reynolds about that. And he was like, well, I was told to watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off before that, you know. Um, and so, uh, you Did know. Did you watch the right one? It, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he watched it, but he just didn't take in any of the yeah. Um, But, you know, that's still a reference point to so many people. Is there any that you would say, are like, I don't want to use the word worst, because I don't think we're dealing with bad films here. Yeah. But I would say my least favourite is Weird Science. Yeah, I, I would say... I'd probably say 16 Candles, actually. Okay. And in a way, I, uh, what was great about 16 Candles is it gave a young woman a voice, you mm -hmm. know. And that was quite a rarity, actually, to have a, a female lead. Uh, again, you know, now we're used to it. It's Lady Bird or whatever, Little Women, you know, we see it yeah. all the time. But that was a rarity. So I don't want to do that down. But I think that the rest of it feels a little pedestrian. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Weird Science is, is not my thing. But I think there's enough Hughesian elements in it for me to enjoy. The sci-fi stuff, I'm less interested in. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that Joel Silver produced that. Joel Silver, of course, went on to do the Matrix movies mm. and many other things. Yeah. And you always wonder what his kind of input, you know, is the sci-fi element, the, the, 
is that Joel Silver pushing that into it a little bit more than than John Hughes? Because uh, you never really got this. You never really got the sense from anything else that John Hughes was into sci-fi. I mean, I think that might be my issue with it, that it kind of sticks out a bit like a sore thumb. Yeah. This is, you wouldn't have had that in any other films and it wouldn't necessarily fit in in any other of the other films. I know. That's interesting. Um, yeah, those two, those two. Out of his teen films, I'd agree with you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, really appreciate this. Oh my God, listen, listen, if someone wants to talk to me about John Hughes for half an hour, I'm more than happy. It's a, a pet project, so I'm very happy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode, and once again, huge thanks to James King for sharing his time and enthusiasm with me. It is very much appreciated. And once again, you can follow James on Twitter, at James King Movies. I'll be back next week with the required learning for the next GCSE set text, John Hughes' own Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You can help support Farrandon Film by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Film by following us on Twitter at Farrandon Film, by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Farrandon Film, and leaving a five-star review at your favourite podcast provider. Stay safe, stay indoors, look after each other, and I will see you next time.